Preface and Introduction of a Narrative of the Life of Mrs. Mary Jemison. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. A Narrative of the Life of Mrs. Mary Jemison by James E. Seaver. Preface that to biographical writings we are indebted for the greatest and best field in which to study mankind or human nature is a fact duly appreciated by a well-informed community in them we can trace the effects of mental operations to their proper sources and by comparing our own composition with that of those who have excelled in virtue or with that of those who have sunk in the lowest depths of folly and vice we are enabled to select a plan of life that will at least afford self-satisfaction, and guide us through the world in paths of morality. Without a knowledge of the lives of the vile and abandoned, we should be wholly incompetent to set an appropriate value upon the charms, the excellence, and the worth of those principles which have produced the finest traits in the character of the most virtuous. Biography is a telescope of life, through which we can see the extremes and excesses of the varied properties of the human heart. Wisdom and folly, refinement and vulgarity, love and hatred, tenderness and cruelty, happiness and misery, piety and infidelity, commingled with every other cardinal virtue or vice, are to be seen on the variegated pages of the history of human events, and are eminently deserving the attention of those who would learn to walk in the paths of peace. The brazen statue and the sculptured marble, can commemorate the greatness of heroes, statesmen, philosophers, and blood-stained conquerors, who have risen to the zenith of human glory and popularity, under the influence of the mild sun of prosperity. But it is the faithful page of biography, that transmits to future generations, the poverty, pain, wrong, hunger, wretchedness, and torment, and every nameless misery, that has been endured by those who have lived in obscurity, and grope their lonely way through a long series of unpropitious events, with but little help besides the light of nature. While the gilded monument displays in brightest colors the vanity of pomp and the emptiness of nominal greatness, the biographical page that lives in every line is giving lessons of fortitude in time of danger, patience in suffering, hope in distress, invention in necessity, and resignation to unavoidable evils. Here also may be learned pity for the bereaved, benevolence for the destitute, and compassion for the helpless. And at the same time, all the sympathies of the soul will be naturally excited to sigh at the unfavorable result, or to smile at the fortunate relief. In the great inexplicable chain which forms the circle of human events, each individual link is placed on a level with the others, and performs an equal task. But as the world is partial, it is the situation that attracts the attention of mankind, and excites the unfortunate vociferous eclat of elevation, that raises the pampered parasite to such an immense height in the scale of personal vanity, as generally to deprive him of respect, before he can return to a state of equilibrium with his fellows, or to the place whence he started. Few great men have passed from the stage of action, who have not left in the history of their lives, indelible marks of ambition or folly which produced insurmountable reverses and rendered the whole a mere caricature that can be examined only with disgust and regret 
Such pictures, however, are profitable, for by others' faults wise men correct their own. The following is a piece of biography that shows what changes may be effected in the animal and mental constitution of man, what trials may be surmounted, what cruelties perpetrated, and what pain endured when stern necessity holds the reins and drives the car of fate. As books of this kind are sought and read with avidity, especially by children, and are well calculated to excite their attention, inform their understanding, and improve them in the art of reading, the greatest care has been observed to render the style easy, the language comprehensive, and the description natural. Prolixity has been studiously avoided. The line of distinction between virtue and vice has been rendered distinctly visible, and chastity of expression and sentiment have received due attention. Strict fidelity has been observed in the composition. Consequently, no circumstance has been intentionally exaggerated by the paintings of fancy, nor by fine flashes of rhetoric. Neither has the picture been rendered more dull than the original. Without the aid of fiction, what was received as matter-of-fact only has been recorded. It will be observed that the subject of this narrative has arrived at least to the advanced age of eighty years that she is destitute of education, and that her journey of life, throughout its texture, has been interwoven with troubles, which ordinarily are calculated to impair the faculties of the mind, and it will be remembered that there are but few old people who can recollect with precision the circumstances of their lives, particularly those circumstances which transpired after middle age. If, therefore, any error shall be discovered in the narration in respect to time, it will be overlooked by the kind reader or charitably placed to the narrator's account, and not imputed to neglect, or to the want of attention in the compiler. The appendix is principally taken from the words of Mrs. Jemison's statements. Those parts which were not derived from her are deserving equal credit, having been obtained from authentic sources. For the accommodation of the reader, the work has been divided into chapters, and a copious table of contents affixed. The introduction will facilitate the understanding of what follows, and, as it contains matter that could not be inserted with propriety in any other place, will be read with interest and satisfaction. Having finished my undertaking, the subsequent pages are cheerfully submitted to the perusal and approbation or animadversion of a candid, generous, and indulgent public. At the same time, it is fondly hoped that the lessons of distress that are portrayed may have a direct tendency to increase our love of liberty, to enlarge our views of the blessings that are derived from our liberal institutions, and to excite in our breasts sentiments of devotion and gratitude to the great author and finisher of our happiness. The Author Pembroke, March 1, 1824 End of Preface Introduction The Peace of 1783 and the consequent cessation of Indian hostilities and barbarities, returned to their friends those prisoners who had escaped the tomahawk, the gauntlet, and the savage fire, after their having spent many years in captivity, and restored harmony to society. The stories of Indian cruelties which were common in the new settlements, and were calamitous realities previous to that propitious event, slumbered in the minds that had been constantly agitated by them, and were only roused occasionally to become the fearful topic of the fireside. It is presumed that at this time there are but few Native Americans that have arrived to middle age, 
who cannot distinctly recollect of sitting in the chimney corner when children, all contracted with fear, and there listening to their parents or visitors, while they related stories of Indian conquests and murders that would make their flaxen hair nearly stand erect and almost destroy the power of motion. At the close of the Revolutionary War, all that part of the state of New York that lies west of Utica was uninhabited by white people, and few indeed had ever passed beyond Fort Stanwix, except when engaged in war against the Indians, who were numerous, and occupied a number of large towns between the Mohawk River and Lake Erie. Some time elapsed after this event, before the country about the lakes and on the Genesee River was visited, save by an occasional land speculator, or by defaulters who wished by retreating to what in those days was deemed almost the end of the earth, to escape the force of civil law. At length the richness and fertility of the soil excited emigration, and here and there a family settled down and commenced improvements in the country which had recently been the property of the aborigines. Those who settled near the Genesee River soon became acquainted with the white woman, as Mrs. Jemison is called, whose history they anxiously sought, both as a matter of interest and curiosity. Frankness characterized her conduct, and without reserve she would readily gratify them by relating some of the most important periods of her life. Although her bosom companion was an ancient Indian warrior, and notwithstanding her children and associates were all Indians, yet it was found that she possessed an uncommon share of hospitality, and that her friendship was well worth courting and preserving. Her house was the stranger's home. From her table the hungry were refreshed. She made the naked as comfortable as her means would admit of, and in all her actions discovered so much natural goodness of heart that her admirers increased in proportion to the extension of her acquaintance, and she became celebrated as the friend of the distressed. She was the protectress of the homeless fugitive, and made welcome the weary wanderer. Many still lived to commemorate her benevolence towards them when prisoners during the war, and to ascribe their deliverance to the mediation of the white woman. The settlements increased, and the whole country around her was inhabited by a rich and respectable people, principally from New England, as much distinguished for their spirit of inquisitiveness as for their habits of industry and honesty, who had all heard from one source and another a part of her life in detached pieces, and had obtained an idea that the whole taken in connection would afford instruction and amusement. Many gentlemen of respectability felt anxious that her narrative might be laid before the public, with a view not only to perpetuate the remembrance of the atrocities of the savages in former times, but to preserve some historical facts which they supposed to be intimately connected with her life, and which otherwise must be lost. Forty years had passed since the close of the Revolutionary War, and almost seventy years had seen Mrs. Jemison with the Indians, when Daniel W. Bannister, Esquire, at the instance of several gentlemen, and prompted by his own ambition to add something to the accumulating fund of useful knowledge, resolved, in the autumn of 1823, to embrace that time, while she was capable of recollecting and reciting the scenes through which she had passed, to collect from herself, and to publish to an accurate account of her life. I was employed to collect the materials and prepare the work for the press, and accordingly went to the house of Mrs. Janet Whaley in the town of Castile, Genesee County, New York, in company with the publisher, who procured the interesting subject of the following narrative, to come to that place, a distance of four miles, and there repeat the story of her eventful life. 
She came on foot in company with Mr. Thomas Clute, whom she considers her protector, and tarried almost three days, which time was busily occupied in taking a sketch of her narrative as she recited it. Her appearance was well calculated to excite a great degree of sympathy in a stranger, who had been partially informed of her origin, when comparing her present situation with what it probably would have been, had she been permitted to have remained with her friends, and to have enjoyed the blessings of civilization. In stature she is very short, and considerably under the middle size, and stands tolerably erect, with her head bent forward, apparently from her having for a long time been accustomed to carrying heavy burdens in a strap placed across her forehead. Her complexion is very white for a woman of her age, and although the wrinkles of fourscore years are deeply indented in her cheeks, yet the crimson of youth is distinctly visible. Her eyes are light blue, a little faded by age, and naturally brilliant and sparkling. Her sight is quite dim, though she is able to perform her necessary labor without the assistance of glasses. Her cheekbones are high and rather prominent, and her front teeth in the lower jaw are sound and good. When she looks up and is engaged in conversation, her countenance is very expressive. But from her long residence with the Indians, she has acquired the habit of peeping from under eyebrows, as they do with the head inclined downwards. Formerly her hair was of a light chestnut brown. It is now quite gray, a little curled, of middling length, and tied in a bunch behind. She informed me that she had never worn a cap nor a comb. She speaks English plainly and distinctly, with a little of the Irish emphasis, and has the use of words so well as to render herself intelligible on any subject with which she is acquainted. Her recollection and memory exceeded my expectation. It cannot be reasonably supposed that a person of her age has kept the events of seventy years in so complete a chain as to be able to assign to each its proper time and place. She, however, made her recital with as few obvious mistakes as might be found in that of a person of fifty. She walks with a quick step without a staff, and I was informed by Mr. Clute that she could yet cross a stream on a log or pole as steadily as any other person. Her passions are easily excited. At a number of periods in her narration, tears trickled down her grief-worn cheek, and at the same time a rising sigh would stop her utterance. Industry is a virtue which she has uniformly practiced from the day of her adoption to the present. She pounds her samp, cooks for herself, gathers and chops wood, feeds her cattle and poultry, and performs other laborious services. Last season she planted, tended, and gathered corn. In short, she is always busy. Her dress, at the time I saw her, was made and worn after the Indian fashion, and consisted of a shirt, short gown, petticoat, stockings, moccasins, a blanket, and a bonnet. The shirt was of cotton, and made at the top, as I was informed, like a man's without collar or sleeves, was open before and extended down about midway of the hips. The petticoat was a piece of broadcloth, with the list at the top and bottom, and the ends sewed together. This was tied on by a string that was passed over it and around the waist, in such a manner as to let the bottom of the petticoat down halfway between the knee and the ankle, and leave one-fourth of a yard at the top to be turned down over the string, the bottom of the shift coming a little below, and on the outside of the top of the fold, so as to leave the list and two or three inches of the cloth uncovered. The stockings were of blue broadcloth, tied or pinned on, which reached from the knees into the mouth of the moccasins. 
Around her toes only she had some rags, and over these her buckskin moccasins. Her gown was of undressed flannel, colored brown. It was made in old Yankee style, with long sleeves, covered the top of the hips, and was tied before in two places with strings of deerskin. Over all this she wore an Indian blanket. On her head she wore a piece of old brown woolen cloth, made somewhat like a sunbonnet. Such was the dress that this woman was contented to wear, and habit had rendered it convenient and comfortable. She wore it not as a matter of necessity, but from choice, for it will be seen in the sequel that her property is sufficient to enable her to dress in the best fashion, and to allow her every comfort of life. Her house in which she lives is twenty by twenty-eight feet, built of square timber with a shingled roof and a framed stoop. In the center of the house is a chimney of stones and sticks, in which there are two fireplaces. She has a good framed barn, twenty-six by thirty-six, well filled, and owns a fine stock of cattle and horses. Besides the buildings above mentioned, she owns a number of houses that are occupied by tenants, who work her flats upon shares. Her dwelling is about one hundred rods north of the Great Slide, a curiosity that will be described in its proper place on the west side of the Genesee River. Mrs. Jemison appeared sensible of her ignorance of the manners of the white people, and for that reason was not familiar, except with those with whom she was intimately acquainted. In fact she was, to appearance, so jealous of her rights, or that she should say something that would be injurious to herself or family, that if Mr. Clute had not been present, we should have been unable to have obtained her history. She, however, soon became free and unembarrassed in her conversation, and spoke with degree of mildness, candor, and simplicity, that is calculated to remove all doubts as to the veracity of the speaker. The vices of the Indians she appeared disposed not to aggravate, and seemed to take pride in extolling their virtues. A kind of family pride inclined her to withhold whatever would blot the character of her descendants, and perhaps induced her to keep back many things that would have been interesting. For the life of her last husband, we are indebted to her cousin, Mr. George Jemison, to whom she referred us for information on that subject generally. The thoughts of his deeds probably chilled her old heart, and made her dread to rehearse them, and at the same time she well knew they were no secret, for she had frequently heard him relate the whole, not only to her cousin, but to others. Before she left us she was very sociable, and she resumed her naturally pleasant countenance, enlivened with a smile. Her neighbors speak of her as possessing one of the happiest tempers and disposition, and give her the name of never having done a censurable act to their knowledge. Her habits are those of the Indians. She sleeps on skins without a bedstead, sits upon the floor or a bench, and holds her victuals on her lap or in her hands. Her ideas of religion correspond in every respect with those of the great mass of the Senecas. She applauds virtue, and despises vice. She believes in a future state, in which the good will be happy, and the bad miserable, and that the acquisition of that happiness depends primarily upon human volition, and the consequent good deeds of the happy recipient of blessedness. The doctrines taught in the Christian religion she is a stranger to. Her daughters are said to be active and enterprising women, and her grandsons, who arrived to manhood, are considered able, decent, and respectable men in their tribe. Having in this cursory manner introduced the subject of the following pages, 
I proceed to the narration of a life that has been viewed with attention, for a great number of years by a few, and which will be read by the public, the mixed sensations of pleasure and pain, with great interest, anxiety, and satisfaction. End of Introduction